told my boys yesterday that I think these first six chapters of Daniel are going to be more familiar to the younger crowd than the older crowd. Because it will be fresh in their mind, these wonderful Old Testament stories that are placed before us. Our text this morning is Daniel chapter 1. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and infallible word. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashkenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would attend your word powerfully in our hearing and in our lives. We ask, O Lord, that you would remind us of our nature, the fact that we are weak and we need you, the fact that we are exiles living away from home, longing to come to the place that you have prepared for us. And so, Lord, this morning we ask that you would show us the truth of your word, that it would take deep root in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we looked last week as we surveyed the entirety of the book of Daniel, as we tried to get an overview of what this book is about, that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are exiles. We are, as the Bible says, strangers in a strange land. We are a part of the world, but we are not of the world. We are in the world by location, but we do not take our marching orders from the world. We are exiles longing to go home. One of the first questions that comes up from this as we face this truth is how are we to relate to others around us? And not just our friends and our neighbors, but especially how do we relate to the power structures that are around us? If this world is in rebellion against our Lord, how do we remain faithful to God and yet live amongst those who rebel? If we desire to serve the living God, how do we relate to those around us who mock him, who disbelieve that he even exists? Well, the first six chapters of Daniel give us a pretty comprehensive answer to this question. It is a question that it will answer over and over again, each chapter in a bit of a different way. But this first chapter is sort of the prototype. It is the pace setter for our thoughts about how to live in the world. You may recall that we said that one of the main questions of the book of Daniel is how does the believer sing the Lord's song when he is in exile, when he is by the rivers of Babylon? Daniel 1 through 6 shows this, and this first chapter is the prototype. And so what I would like us to see this morning are three things. First, I would like us to see in the person of Daniel and his friends life's difficulties. We will look at their story, but we will see that there are seeds of our story in theirs. We will look at life's difficulties. And then, when we have examined the challenges that are before us, we will look and we will see faith's response to these difficulties. So not only the difficulties of life, but faith's response. Finally, and most importantly, since we know that faith does not come from ourselves, but it is the gift of God, we will see that faith's response is dependent on God's provision. So life's difficulties, faith's response, and then God's provision. Let's start by looking here at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1. Daniel opens up with a historical marker so we know the context of what's going on. This is a reminder of this event. 
These first two verses are very important to this chapter. Even if they're not included in every Sunday school lesson, you can't really understand what is going on in the rest of chapter 1 if we don't face verses 1 and 2. And what do verses 1 and 2 tell us? Well, what they tell us, very basically, is that the worst nightmare of the people of God has come true. Let that sink in for a minute. Think about all of the times that you have been discouraged, discouraged about our country, discouraged about the church, discouraged about your family. And then I want you to go beyond that to the worst nightmare you can think of. The place where you don't even want to go, where your mind shuts off, where you distract yourself with the radio. That is what is happening to the people of God. A powerful and wicked king, King Nebuchadnezzar, has come down to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, that's not the most nightmarish thing about these two verses. The most nightmarish thing is that the king of Babylon comes down against Jerusalem and God does nothing. That is the nightmare that keeps us up. You see, other kings had come before to Jerusalem. It hadn't even been very long before, just a a generation or two, when another powerful king, the king of Assyria, with a mighty army, had come to besiege Jerusalem, and the Lord God had wiped the entire army out without one Judean soldier lifting a weapon. And so you could imagine, if you were a part of the people of God, If you were a young man like Daniel, if you were his parents, you would imagine hoping, praying, waiting on the Lord God to come and deliver you from Nebuchadnezzar. But you see, God does not help. He had done so so often before, but now he is not to be found. Now, we don't need to have Katie besieged by a foreign army to experience this in our lives, do we? We have trials and tribulations in our own lives in which we expect God to answer our fervent prayers. And there is silence. We expect that new job to show up any day now. We expect the doctor's report to clear up any time next week. We expect life to get better and better in our marriage as soon as we begin fervently to pray. But there are times when God is silent Seeming distant, perhaps even gone. Are you tempted in your trials and tribulations when God does not answer your prayers as quickly or as precisely as you would like to think that the reason is because God is gone? He's forgotten about you. He's worried about someone who's a bigger fish. This is a trial that faces the people of God every single day. But you see, this attack from Nebuchadnezzar is also evidence of a greater conflict. It is not by accident that the text tells us that Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Jerusalem and he takes some of the vessels of the temple of God. And where does he take them to? He takes them to the land of Shinar. Now, Perhaps you have a study Bible that has a footnote, or perhaps you are a student of the Scriptures, and you're saying to yourself, I've heard this name before. Shinar, that's, that's not exactly common. I remember this place. You think about it. Think about it. Oh, that's right. 
That's the place where they built the Tower of Babel. Babel, Babylon. That is the place where the human system, where man's ability to govern himself, where man's ability to find meaning in himself began. This is not an accident. You see, this attack upon God's people, even though God is permitting it, as we'll see in a moment, is evidence of a greater battle, a battle between those who would oppose God and those who would serve him. The text makes this even clearer to us in the way in which it uses language. Look at verse 2. It says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and with them some of the vessels of the house of God. And what happens to these vessels? They are brought to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, that is, Nebuchadnezzar's. This is a setup of the true God against the false God. Actually, we could translate this the house of his gods because it is a plural in the Hebrew. And we know that the Babylonians had a number of gods. They had three or four main deities. They're hard to keep track of because they were so confusing. They kept mixing up the names and changing them. They were true polytheists. They couldn't even keep track of which God they were to worship. And so you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar in triumph, bringing the vessels of the Lord God into the temples of his gods. Well, I think I'll put the plates here and let's see, let's put the vessels over here and let's put the, the drapes over there, almost like an interior decorator. And you see, this becomes more powerful when you realize in this day and age, this was a sign that your God was more powerful than the other God. You see, if you were a Babylonian, you would say, this God of the Israelites is worthless. He is impotent. He cannot stop our army. Look, we have his holy vessels in our temple. This is a nightmare. But it is a nightmare that God has brought about. You see, Daniel makes clear to us the truth. Behind the events. You see, if you were to look at these events, you might think, well, the Babylonians had a better trained army. Or they cared more about funding defense or attack in this case. Or perhaps they were just more powerful or better. They couldn't be stopped. But in reality, Nebuchadnezzar is not in charge. He's not doing anything because you see, in the year of the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the Lord gave him into the hands of the Babylonians. This is God's doing. And this shouldn't surprise us, we who have studied First and Second Kings together, because there were a great number of warnings given to Judah. There were the prophets who came over and over again and told them that if they continued to rebel against God, they would go into exile. There were invasions from Assyria. Warnings that if you do not follow the Lord God and worship Him alone, you will be taken into exile. And then the whole northern kingdom was taken off into exile. And yet still the people of Judah did not listen. The author tells us that God is in charge here. Do you wonder how he could be so sure? Do you wonder how Daniel is so positive that it is God who gave Israel and Judah into the hands of our enemies? The answer is simpler than you think. It's not because he was inspired. It's not because he had some secret window into knowledge. 
It's simply because he believed God's word. Isaiah told him in chapter 39 that this would happen. We saw it again in in 2 Kings. God told Judah this would happen, and Daniel believes him. This is an encouragement to us to trust the Word of God. How much do you trust Him? Do you trust Him enough to believe His Word even when it is not positive for us? Even when it's a word of judgment and chastisement? You see, in our current context, it should be on one level very frightening to trust God's Word about the slaughter of innocence about the plague of abortion that plagues our land, that people ignore day after day, that the church refuses to speak against. God's Word is plain. Do you trust Him enough to know that perhaps there will be judgment for this? But at the same time, do you trust Him enough to know that even if the United States should go away, even if our empire should fall, that the church always will stand. That nothing will prevail against the Lord God. That was the faith that Daniel had. This is the tragedy of exile that came upon Daniel. But then, quick upon it comes the attack of the world. I want you to notice the nature of the attack. These four youths, amongst others, probably between 50 and 75 Youth, the cream of the crop of Judah, are brought back to Babylon. And they are told that they are to be schooled, they are to be fed, and they are to be enrolled in the king's service. Now, at first blush, this doesn't sound like so bad of a deal. Wait a minute, you mean we're the defeated enemy and you're going to pay for my college education? And you're going to feed me? And not just dorm food? You're going to feed me from the king's table? And then I get a free job that is well paid and connected to power? Wow. You can imagine that some of these youths might just jump at this. Because you see, the attacks of the world are not always by brute force. The world doesn't always attack with shock and awe. Oftentimes, the attacks are subtle, deceptive. Those are often the most effective. For example, from history, we may think that the most significant part of D-Day were the dozens and dozens and dozens of Navy vessels shelling Normandy. Or we might think it was the thousands and thousands of paratroopers that dropped down. Or the hundreds of tanks. But really, the most effective weapon that ensured victory at D-Day was the deception that the Allies were going to land somewhere else. It kept the Germans from committing needed reinforcements, and it actually won the day. You can almost say that D-Day was won by papier-mâché tanks commanded by General Patton, and he never set foot on Normandy. You see, that's often how the world attacks. The world is intelligent. Nebuchadnezzar was no fool. He knew that if he attacked and took over Judah, it would use resources. He would have to have Babylonian guards. He'd have to have a standing Babylonian army. He would have to rule and deal with rebellions. So he had a better plan. He was going to put Jewish resources to work for him. He would take the cream of the crop, 
young men who had not been indoctrinated yet, who had not been firmed up yet in their commitments to Israel and to the living God. And he would take them from their families thousands of miles away, and he would put them into his service. And then he would use them as his instrument of rule. It's the ultimate in divide and conquer. It's a brilliant plan. It's something that he used over and over again. And you'll notice that he's very careful about this plan. Look at the characteristics of these men. They are to be youths without blemish of good appearance. They are to be, we might even say, potential models. They are to be completely handsome. They are to be striking in their appearance so that when they speak, they will be listened to. There will be authority about them. But not just that. They are to be skillful in all wisdom. That is, they are to be taught. They have understanding and they understand learning. They not only have knowledge, but they know how to apply it. These are real go-getters. These are people who score in the top two or three percent of the SATs. They have great potential. And thirdly, don't miss that they are competent to stand in the king's palace. These are also men that don't stand around with their hands in their pockets. They don't spend time before the king scratching their ear or looking around. They are alert. They have, they have good decorum. They have the best of manners. These are the best that Israel has to offer. And so how does he deal with these young men? Well, the attack comes first through isolation. Notice what happens. They are separated from others. They are taken out from their families and taken to Babylon. And they're not even permitted to be amongst other Jews. They are placed in a schooling environment. As one friend of mine says, they are enrolled in BTS, Babylonian Theological Seminary. They are placed in a school where they cannot have any other influences. And they are young. The word here for youth describes a young man between the age of about 13 and 17. And we know from historical sources that it was typical in the Persian Empire to enter into this kind of schooling at 13 or 14 for three years. So I want you to imagine this. You see, it's all well and good to think about Daniel as a Bible hero. But I want you teens to think about someone coming and taking you. And you never see your parents again, never see your siblings again, never see your friends again. And you are whisked off to a foreign land where there are all sorts of pomp and pageantry, as we've seen. And where you are offered the best things that this city has to offer. If only you stop believing in God. I want you to imagine what an unbelievable temptation that is. That's who Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah are. They're young men. They're isolated off from their compatriots. And then the next step in the phase begins. That is, they begin to be indoctrinated. It is not without purpose that these young men are trained in the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. That is, the Babylonians. Chaldean writing, Babylonian language, is amongst the most difficult of ancient languages to learn. It uses what are called cuneiform. That is, you've seen these, these little squiggly pictures that make up words, kind of like hieroglyphics. But there were 
hundreds of them. And so you couldn't just learn letters and have to do phonics. You had to get hooked on cuneiform. And the way you get hooked on cuneiform is you write it out over and over and over and over again. Well, you need something to write out, of course, don't you? So guess what you get to write out over and over and over again? Mythological books. Books about the religion of Bel and Marduk and all the Babylonian deities. Babylonian philosophy. The Babylonian way of life. So by learning to read and write, you are being indoctrinated in the thought of what it means to be a Babylonian. You see, the idea is you're no longer an Israelite. You are a Babylonian. Think like us. Write like us. Be like us. This is incredibly significant. Now, there's an importance here. Daniel is not condemned for doing this. He doesn't actually even refuse. You see, oftentimes I think we can focus upon the superficial. We look at a newspaper or a book and we see if the language is a little bit spicy. And we use that as our main judgment of whether something is good or bad. Or perhaps we look at a piece of literature and we say, well, you know, this was written by a pagan named Cicero. Can't read that. That'll lead you astray. But in reality, the substance is more deceptive. It's more important. You see, it's not just the superficial that's the problem. It is the indoctrination. It is the thought process. This is what is attempted to be happening to Daniel and his friends. So they are isolated. They are indoctrinated. And then there is this issue of the compromise. The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. What's going on here? Daniel and his friends are taken away from home. They're indoctrinated. And then, as we see a little bit later, they're, they're given different names. They're no longer even allowed to be called by their same names anymore. Forget the Lord God. We're going to take Lord out of your name. Daniel means God is my judge. Can't have that name. Let's have a Babylonian deity as my protector. Mishael means, this is a wonderful name, it means who is like God, or who is what God is. And his name is changed to worthless one. Azariah means God helps. And his name is changed to the servant or slave of Nebo, another Babylonian deity. Now, do you notice that Daniel doesn't object and try and run away from home, so to speak, he doesn't make his stand when he is trained in the Babylonian language and literature. He doesn't refuse the name that is given to him. And this name is put upon him. The text here is actually not as clear as it should be. It said the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. The Hebrew actually says he set names on them. And then in verse 9 we see, Daniel resolved, or more correctly, Daniel set his heart, same word as verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Now, we stand back here, I think, and we say, whoa, wait a minute here. Okay, you know, I make sure of my children's education. 
I make sure that it's a good education. It's a quality education. I make sure that my children are near to me and are under my influence. But, you know, whether they eat a baby Ruth or a slice of pizza, I'm not that concerned about. Why is Daniel making such a big deal about here? What's the issue? Well, some commentators raise their hand and they say, oh, I don't know what it is. It's because this food was offered to idols and Daniel did not want to participate in idol worship. There's only one problem with that. So were the vegetables. So that can't be our answer. And someone else says, well, I know what it is. Surely these Babylonians, they like to have ham sandwiches. So they don't follow the dietary restrictions. That was what it must be. Daniel didn't want to defile himself ritually. He wanted to stay ritually clean. There's only one slight problem with that. There's nothing in any of the Pentateuch about wine being bad. So why couldn't Daniel drink the wine? There may have been food that he couldn't eat, but this kind of a setting, there'd be a feast laid out before him. You could bypass the pork chops and dig into the roast beef. What do we think is going on here? I think what's going on here is Daniel set himself. He set himself when Nebuchadnezzar and all the power of Babylon said, you will acknowledge that we are your providers, that we are your masters, that you are a part of us. You will have table fellowship with us. Think about the power of that, that table fellowship. There's a reason why we have the Lord's table. It's because we gather around as a community. You see, Daniel set himself and he set his heart against this because he would not acknowledge Nebuchadnezzar and his gods as his provider. And so he chooses foods that are natural, that are provided by God. Water and vegetables. He wants to make a constant reminder for himself every day when he gets up and someone says, Hey, Belteshazzar, that he is still dependent on God. When he gets up in the morning and they stick a cuneiform tablet in front of him, he says, I'm still dependent on God as he chomps on his celery. He remembers that he's dependent on God. You see, we need that constant reminder too, don't we? It's very easy to go out and about in the world and simply be like everyone else. There is a strong pull. There's a strong pull to make the world's priorities our priorities. Well, you know... Got to be careful. Can't be too charitable. Got to save for my retirement. You know, got to retire at 65. Got to be ready. Well, you know, let's not get too, let's not get too harsh. Let's not get too strident about believing in Jesus. He's just one amongst others. You know, we can honor Jesus, but let's, let's be, let's be gracious. And let's say good things about Allah and Buddha. And various other deities. You see, this is the temptation that faces us, even as it faced Daniel. Because you see, the real attack here is the attack of assimilation. This is kind of like the human, ancient Near East version of the Borg. You know this science fiction? There is no resistance. You will all be like us. That's what the Babylonians want. They want you to think Babylonian. Talk Babylonian. Act Babylonian. This is the challenge that the world presents. But I want you to see that Daniel did not lose his identity. 
In chapter 5, verse 12, there's a very interesting thing that happens. What happens is the queen needs someone to interpret a dream. And in verse 12, do you know who she calls? Daniel. She doesn't call for Belteshazzar. She calls for Daniel. You see, Daniel and his compatriots were not willing to make a life or death issue over these names, but they retained their names amongst themselves. And their honor was such that others saw them and could not help but be influenced by that. You see, the Babylonians wanted to influence and assimilate Daniel, and Daniel is influencing and assimilating them. Now think about that next time you worry about the size of the church. These are four young kids in the most powerful empire in the world. And they're the change makers. Simply by being faithful. Simply by setting their purpose toward God. You see, the officials set the names on Daniel. But faith's response is such that Daniel set his heart upon refusing to be Babylonian. It was a well-thought-out maneuver. It was not a spur of the moment. You see, especially young people, if you want to make a stand for God, for the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't rely upon the spur of the moment. You have to think about it ahead of time. Where will I make my stand? How will I make my stand? Why will I make my stand? Daniel had thought about all of these things because, you see, the pressure at that time was intense. Others around him were no doubt compromising. Other youths of Judah. Maybe his friend Jacob said, you know, this food is awesome. You really ought to get it. There was also the, the thought that maybe he would get in trouble. He would not have the same appearance as the others. But you see, Daniel doesn't wait for a big matter to draw the line. Because he knows the truth that the second stand is always harder if you pass on the first. So he is decisive in his purpose, but I want you to see something else about Daniel. This is something that the Church of Jesus Christ in America today could learn from. He's not only decisive, he has a godly spirit about him. Daniel does not find a Babylonian lawyer and try and sue the chef to get his kind of food. Daniel doesn't scream at the top of his lungs. There is no way I'm eating this food. You can hang me up from the nearest tree. No. What does he do? He goes and he goes and talks after he's purposed. He goes to the chief of the eunuchs and he says... I really don't need to eat this food. I don't want to defile myself with this food. He says, please, verse 12, test your servant for ten days. He says this. He not only first goes to the chief of the eunuchs, who is understandably concerned that if Daniel and his compatriots eat vegetables and water, that they're not going to look as healthy as the others. In Babylonian society, healthy meant you were a little bit overweight. If you think about it, that makes sense because poor people don't have much to eat. It can only eat vegetables. Rich people have a lot to eat. And so he's saying, you know, I don't know if we want to go with this because you're going to look sickly, thin and sickly, and I'm going to lose my head. 
And so Daniel then goes to his junior and he says, I understand your chief's concern. So how about you just give me 10 days? 10 days is enough for you to see the difference. And if I'm wrong, we'll submit. But 10 days is also not so long that if I'm wrong, we won't be able to recover. Do you see how Daniel handles the situation? With humility. With respect for others. You see, he knows that there is something going on here. And he wants to be winsome. He wants to make an effect. He knows this is potentially a political act. You see, when the eunuch says, why should you be, why would it be that you were in worse condition? The you were there refers to Daniel's face. And it's not just about whether he looks droopy or tired. He says, why should it be that you look defiant before my king? You go in and you go in with a snarl and an attitude and arms crossed. He's going to take my head off in addition to yours. I can't have that. Because that's this worst condition. It can not only mean sickly, it can also mean angry or defiant. And look at what Daniel responds with in verse 13. He says, well, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat be such. And he intentionally uses a neutral word. The last thing that Daniel has is a hope, an expected hope. Daniel says, test me for ten days, and you'll see. And if it doesn't work, we'll submit. Do you think Daniel has an idea of what's going to happen here? You see, Daniel expects God to honor his decision. He expects God to come through. Now, he has good reason for that because we've already seen here that God, in verse 9, has given him favor in the eyes of those whom he's speaking with. It would have been perfectly natural for the chief of the eunuchs when Daniel, this young upstart, 13-year-old boy, says, Excuse me, sir, could I have the vegetables? To say, shut up, sit down, and eat it. But he doesn't. He engages him. And then his junior engages him even more. And he says, well, we'll give this a shot. You see, Daniel has seen God at work, and he expects to see him at work. Do you? You see, I think sometimes we're excited about taking a stand. And we're almost expecting that stand to bring ruin and danger. So that then we can say we're being persecuted for the faith. If we must be persecuted for the faith, so be it. We'll see that in a few chapters with the three youths. But why don't we expect God to come through? Why don't we expect God to give us favor? Why don't we expect God, who holds the heart of the king in his hand, to bring victory? You see, when we are involved in these things, there are three options available to us. We can either attack the world, throw rocks, scream and yell. We can go and retreat into a little ghetto in which we hope never to be confronted by these situations again. We'll never hear any bad music because we don't listen to any music. We'll never read any bad books because we don't read any books. We retreat. When in reality, the option that is before us is the option that Daniel took, which is to transform the world by our faith and our decisions. To move forward in confidence in the living God. This is Daniel's response 
to the difficulties of life. I know you face them. I do as well. Do you have hope in the Lord? Are you humble in your interactions? Do you have a set resolve to push forward? Because you see, in the final analysis, briefly, God's provision is what makes all of this possible. You see, we need to recognize that God is sovereign. One of the ways you can divide up this chapter is in threes with the words God gave. We see it in verse 2. The Lord gave Judah into Babylon. We see it in verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion. And we see it again in verse 17. God gave them learning and skill. God is in complete control of Daniel's life. God is providing mercy every single day. This is why we should be a thankful people. Why even in this land of plenty, every time we sit down at a meal, we should give thanks for it. Because God is the one who is in control. And God's mercy is that he is preparing Daniel and these youths for, this, for the greater temptations to come. Do you honestly think that these three youths could look at the face of a furnace and say, well, toss me in. If God saves me, he'll save me. If they back down over food. You see, if you want to face the great challenges of your life, you must start by recognizing the mercy of God in the small challenges. And God is faithful. In verse 9 it says that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This is not an accident. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 50, in the prayer of the dedication of the temple, Solomon prays this. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who have carried them captive. Exact same word. A centuries-old prayer and promise fulfilled in the life of Daniel. Because you see, our God is not only merciful, He is faithful. He is faithful and true. And we see this at the end of the chapter in what almost seems to be a throwaway verse. Look at verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you wonder why this is in here? That sentence takes place 80 years later. Why is chapter 1 discussing it here? Well, we might say it bookends the beginning of the book in terms of when Nebuchadnezzar comes on. But I think it points to something else. It points to the fact that God is faithful through all of Daniel's life. And Cyrus is the one who will sign the decree for the return to the promised land. You see, even here we're getting a glimpse of that. God is faithful for the return. God's faithfulness is good the whole time. And if we think about it, that's what drives all of our lives. Waiting upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful one who redeems, protects, and is merciful to us, even when we are not Daniel. Even when we are one of the 60-some-odd other compromisers. Jesus came to save them. He comes to save you. 
This legacy of the Lord Jesus Christ will play out throughout the centuries. Do you remember who came bearing gifts for the child Jesus? You know, we don't have a nativity scene up here, but you know, we've seen them. The wise men, those wise guys. You know where they came from? The East. Do you know what their profession was? They were magicians. How do you think they found out about a coming king? A coming Messiah so important that they traveled thousands of miles to see his star. Do you think it could be the daily testimony of Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael? I'm not sure, but I think so. What we do, how we are faithful, makes a difference for eternity. 